I would ask that all of us, if we have a Bible, to turn in our Bibles to the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And any of you viewing uh, live, via live stream at home, I encourage you to take uh, a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This story is a little bit post-Christmas, although it is identified with uh, the Christmas story. But uh, I thought it would be it would be appropriate for us to consider uh, this passage being post-Christmas that it is for our service this morning. So if you would, hear the Word of God as we begin reading in verse 1 through to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophets, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his, the ministry of his word. O oh, Holy Father, we bow before you, conscious, O oh Lord, that we and ourselves are utterly incompetent uh, to press your word home to the hearts of your dear people with the power and the authority with which it ought to come. And therefore, Father, knowing our other inability to produce such uh, a work, we cry out to you, O God, that you would be pleased to bless this portion of your word to these, your dear people. 
I pray, Father, that it might be a word of the gospel, that it might encourage those who are outside of you to flee to Christ. I pray, O Father, that it might be a source of strength and encouragement to your people. And I pray, Father, that our faith would be renewed once again by the narrative of this passage. O Lord, be pleased to do what no preacher is able to do. Make this portion of your word to all of our hearts real. And we ask that you do so with power from above. We plead these mercies in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I want for us to look together this morning for a little while at this extraordinary passage which we find in the Word of God. These wise men have a rather singular and striking attractiveness about them that has been the case with respect to them for some centuries now, ever since they sought the Christ child. If you ever happen to have occasion or opportunity to go to the city of Cologne on the banks of the Rhine River in Germany and enter into the great cathedral there, you will discover that right to the right of the high altar, there is this golden tabernacle which contains within it, so it is said, and so many believe, the bones of the wise men from the east. They were discovered, no doubt purchased by Helen, the busy mother of the emperor Justinian, or Constantine. And she brought them first to Constantinople, and then they were taken to Milan on the north part of Italy. And then in 1162, they were given to the cathedral church at Cologne. Now, a good dose of healthy suspicion may cause you to doubt highly the alleged historicity and authenticity as to whose bones those really are, as is the case with so many alleged ancient relics from the past. The fact is that their bones mean absolutely nothing to me. But I do want for us to look at this passage for a little while together as we consider its historical and authentic uh, aspects from the pages of Holy Scripture. First of all, I want you to notice with me the Magi. That word traditionally translated wise men, Magi, came from the East. And our word wise men, uh, as I've indicated, is a translation of the original Greek here of Magoi, which is plural for the Magi. Magi itself is a Latin word. And we are not given much in the way of detail, though we may think that they came from Persia. Now, a long-held point of view is that they were Medians, that they were from the tribe of the Medes, uh, which was once powerful and was conjoined with the... Uh, the, the Persians, and they ruled a great part of the ancient Near East for a very long time. The first of the great media Persian rulers known in the Old Testament was none other than Cyrus himself, died around the year 401 B.C. But the Medes were not in particularly 
military figures for the most part. They were scholars, they were inquirers, they were priests. Um, they were wise men, as we read here in the text. They gave themselves to pouring over manuscripts and contemplating mathematical puzzles and uh, also gazing at the stars. They were, in a way, scientists, rather less, of course, than scientists in our modern-day meaning of the term. But they were, nevertheless, wise men who were scholars and who were learned and who delighted in the pursuit of truth. And their astronomy was strongly admixed together with their astrology for reasons which are not very far for us to seek. Now they believed, these wise men then from Persia, that the stars could and must be read in relation to their bearing upon the world and upon their own times and must be read in that way. And uh, that even what they saw in the stars had an impact upon the affairs of men. So these wise men, they came from the east and uh, as the word ought to be translated, men from the east, uh, and Matthew describes them for us, and you'll notice that they present to us a rather striking contrast to the position of their counterparts, more or less among the Jews. Because here the Gentiles, and they were Gentiles for sure, which it seems very clear, these Gentiles, these wise men, they came to Jerusalem, and when they arrived in Jerusalem, they discovered that the religious establishment there were entirely uninterested in that which had become the central part of their quest in their lives. The chief priests and the scribes, these learned in the scriptures and other religious leaders of the Jewish people were giving themselves at that time to the rituals, to the ceremonies of the temple and the puzzling out of minute implications and incidental parts of the Mosaic law. But this great reality for which the wise men sought and the great reality which pointed them along the way had altogether escaped notice of the religious folk in Jerusalem. I want you to notice then in the second place. These wise men came from the east seeking one born king of the Jews. In fact, they expressed themselves in that very way to this point. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now how did they ever come to this knowledge, this bit of information which is recorded for us here in Holy Scripture? Well, it's possible, I suppose, that amongst them there were some lingering memories reminiscent amongst them uh, of an ancient prophet from the Old Testament by the name of Balaam, of whom and whose words we read about in the Old Testament book of Numbers, it is more likely, I think, that Daniel was probably still remembered by these wise men. Uh, he was, after all, taken as a Jewish lad captive in Babylon, and there he was pressed into the service of the king, 
And he retained his spiritual integrity while at the same time becoming the wisest of them all. But there is something more here as well. Among certain of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, both in the East as well as in the West at this time, there was a sense that something momentous was about to take place, that something of great consequence was about to happen at that time. The Romans wrote of this, and I could name a few of their ancient writers and others, uh, and some Oriental writers as well. It's vague, perhaps. Its, its context was uncertain, and its contours, to be sure, were blurred. But there was a general feeling at that time that something great was about to happen. And great numbers of the people looked forward to this great event coming to pass. There was a sense of religious anticipation and longing. These wise men from the eastern parts, you'll notice they give visible expression to this. They had a hunger too. And they were prepared when they saw his star in the east to come in what Every way they could across this great and dangerous desert in order to search for him among the Jews. There's another contrast here in our text as well. You'll notice how these wise men speak to us of wanting to know where this one born king of the Jews could be found. And they put that very question to Herod, Herod the Great. Herod, the appointee of Augustus Caesar, Herod, the usurper, born king of the Jews. That phrase was enough to strike fear and horror in the heart of Herod. He was not born king of the Jews. He had no claim whatsoever to the dignity of that office. He had been installed in it by his Roman superior, and he had maintained himself in that office by force of arms. But one had been born, so he is now told, who was king of the Jews, not by the appointment of a Roman emperor, emperor, emperor but by native right. He's been born. And so it was that Herod consulted the learned men of Jerusalem, to discover where the place of the Messiah might be. And so it was also that these wicked impulses on Herod's part were unleashed in the time ahead of this narrative to the slaughter of so many infant boys in the area of Bethlehem. Herod was a wicked ruler in the third place. And I think this is particularly interesting to myself. It might be to many others, might be to some of you. These magi, these wise men came to Jerusalem, guided, we're told, by a star. Now how could they be led by a star? And in what form did that star appear? What form did that star take? A great deal of thought has been devoted to this by uh, speculators, both learned and ignorant. Much, much ink has been spilt as well 
across the centuries. But fairly recently, several books have appeared dealing with this very question, trying to answer it. Long ago, the great Austrian astronomer uh, Johannes Kepler uh, insisted in his view that the star of Bethlehem should be understood as a nova or as a supernova, an exploding star, if you please. And a few years back, uh, I believe that was 2001, Sir Patrick uh, Moore, the most venerable astronomer, astronomer uh, as in, in Great Britain, he addressed himself to this subject in a book titled The Star of Bethlehem. And after considering a number of options, he settles on one which he thinks best fits the circumstances described in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. He thinks that the star of Bethlehem was a couple of meteors, shooting stars. That's what he makes of the star of Bethlehem. But just a year before him, uh, Mark Kidger, uh, a British uh, astrophysicist, in his book, The Star of Bethlehem, An Astronomer's View, he supports the Nova theory, yes, but he also thinks in terms of a conjunction of planets as well to provide uh, the heavens with this appearance of a brilliant star, if you please, which was altogether arresting and unusual to the people of this day. And it may have been viewed by the wise men from the eastern parts as a star that indicated the birth of the king of the Jews. At the same time, another fellow, Michael Molnar, he was an American astronomer. Uh, and, and in his book, The Star of Bethlehem, The Legacy of the Magi, and it is a rather interesting book, but he takes an altogether different approach. He thinks that we're to understand the star of Bethlehem not in terms of astronomy, but rather in terms of astrology. And that there is quite a difference uh, between the two of them. Uh, he supposes that in their learning uh, with respect to the stars, these wise, these wise men were superstitious. These were wise men who vested confidence in ideas which are now thoroughly discredited. Nevertheless, he thinks, through a divine interposition, they saw something which was right, which led them first to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem and to the place where the infant Christ was to be found. Now there can be no doubt that these magi, these wise men, were indeed astrologers as well as astronomers. And we give no countenance whatsoever to astrological calculations and predictions having to do with the Christian faith. But just how we're to interpret what we're told here in this passage remains somewhat uncertain to us. Some have thought of the Shekinah glory of God uh, of which much is said in the Old Testament, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, which led the people through the wilderness. Others have thought of some specially created 
uh, celestial phenomenon. And that uh, that was what the Lord fashioned just for that occasion. And it presented itself in a supernatural way to these magi who were following it to the Christ child. We simply do not know. But this account in Matthew's gospel still continues to allure the attention of such profound and learned men. It is impressive, and what is said here is altogether important. Whatever the star was, I believe it was supernatural in nature, and that God made use of that phenomena to, drive, to direct the wise men, to the place of the Christ child. You'll notice in the fourth place, these magi, these wise men from uh, the east, they came to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to worship the newborn king. And they express their intent when they speak to Herod of this. We have seen his star, we have seen the his star when it rose, or we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to Worship Him. Worship Him. And then in verse 11, when they came to the house and saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down in proskuneo, Greek for they worshipped Him. How extraordinary. How, how was, so far as all physical appearances were concerned, here is an ordinary-looking, normal, human infant, a baby boy. He had no halo around his head. There was no divine magnificence shining through his flesh. He was there in his mother's arms being nursed at her breast. And we may think at this stage... She had to look after him as any other mother would have to look after a newborn child. And yet through that star, led as they were by its guidance, these wise men came to Bethlehem and yielded Christ's obeisance. They acknowledged him and they worshipped him. And that worship, you'll notice, is expressed in tangible form. They worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, well, that is a gift for a king, is it not? Frankincense, a gift for a priestly figure. Myrrh given as appointed to the death that he would die, as well as the burial he would receive, because myrrh was used to anoint anoint the bodies of those who were dead. All of that is possible, of course. And there's a great deal of tradition behind those interpretations attached to the, attached to the gifts. We like to hear sung or ourselves sing it this season of the year, the Christmas song, although we don't sing it here. We three kings of Orient are. And in the stanzas that follow each one, uh, there are three in that song, and they speak of the individual gifts that each one came to give the newborn child. Now the genesis for that idea 
uh, that there were three wise men must have come from the three gifts that were given. We do not know how many wise men there were. All we know is there were, they were plural because it's magoi in the Greek, plural. We don't, it could have been two. It could have been a party of more. But we read about the, this. We're not told how many men actually came. But of course, all of that is unimportant. What matters is that they identify this baby, this king of the Jews, as Christ, and that they worshipped him. William Foxwell Albright, uh, who lived from 1891 to the year 1971, who was the premier American Orientalist, who made famous the Department of Assyriology at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. He gives us an insight here with respect to these gifts, which I think we do not see anywhere else. He points out that the myrrh was actually a suitable gift for a king and was used in the East whenever a king was anointed. But these gifts, he argues, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were also part of the common stock and trade of Magoi, of wise men. And magical charms in Persia were written in myrrh ink. Albright regarded gold, frankincense, and myrrh as tools of the trade, so to speak. Offerings that in his understanding the Magi would not give in homage to a newborn king, but rather as a declaration of dissociation from the past and adherence to a new allegiance. They were saying, Albright insists, and I believe there's much to be said for his own interpretation. They were saying that they used to serve the gods of their people, but that now they meant to serve them no longer. All their interest and commitments are here, now wrapped up in the one born King of the Jews, God's own Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Savior of the world. If you stop and think about it, it's just that kind of dissociation which Christ demands of any who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Paul said, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. They worshiped him. That is to say, they trusted him. They gave themselves to him. They believed in him. And as best they could from afar, they followed him. Then fifthly and finally, there's one more thing I'd like for us to look at this morning. Something I think of immense significance. These magi, they came to Christ as the first people of an innumerable company to follow. You say, what do you mean by that, David? Well, on the sixth day of January, it's known on some ecclesiastical calendars as epiphany. And that's just simply another Greek word which really means exhibition or manifestation or appearance. 
And the idea behind the Magi is that they were the first of the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ, while still an infant, that they were the first of the Gentiles, the first fruits of the Gentile host who would look upon him as their Lord and their Savior. And I think that's, that has a lot to say for itself. That is the meaning of what is known as the festival of Epiphany in our day. It is essentially, one could fairly say, supposed to be at least, a missionary festival. It was a festival of expansion, of outreach, of growth. And it has in view the fulfillment of that ancient world from the prophets that the day is coming when the earth shall be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We live in a time that has some very frightening dimensions to it. You don't need me to tell you that. And that is certainly the case now more than only a few years ago. Two great religions are on the edge of a great struggle today. The Islamic East and the once largely, I say once largely, Christian West, where many, many Christians are still to be found. Folk have often stated that one should not judge Islam by the terrorists that have committed such terrible crimes in our own country as well as in other parts of the world, that Islam is, a faith, uh, is not a faith of war, but that it's a faith of peace, and that Islam is a faith of gentle folk who insist on patience and kindness and mutual love. There is no truth in that claim. None whatsoever. But mind you, Christians have committed heinous acts in the past. And much more recently, and when we consider the record of our own shame, I think, in relation to non-Christian peoples, we ought to hang our heads in shame and cry out to God for forgiveness. But from first to last in the Old Testament, it is clear that the Christian faith is not a faith of sword and spears, of guns and bombs. It is rather a faith of peace and love and joy and redemption. And it is true in this respect, as in so many other respects, that by one's fruit, one is to be known. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And Islam bears not only the harshness we have seen, but there is also the terrible deprivation of women on the wide scale. It is the diminishment, I think, of the institution of marriage. One can have four wives and any number of concubines besides, so long as you can support them. And of course, divorce from a wife is easy in Islam. One has only to say in presence of two witnesses, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And she is sent away with a clothes on her back and whatever she may carry in her hands. There's nothing attractive about that kind of deprivation of women. Now let me say this 
I really don't have any interest this morning in denigrating another religion while exalting our own. But what I have been thinking about in connection with the story of the Magi is, and may it be true, is it not possible that with the threat on the horizon, the conflict between these two religions, that these things have taken place in order to open up Islam to a consideration of the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope so. I pray so that it will happen. It has not happened today except in a few scattered places. Outreach, missionary work amongst the Islamic people has been slow and painstaking and costly as well. The great name I think of here, and I, with this story, I want to bring this to a close, is the name of the great Dutch missionary, Zwinger. And uh, he was nicknamed the Apostle to Islam. And the last part of his career, he, he worked as the uh, professor of missions at Princeton Seminary. Uh, maybe Dave remembers him. Once early in the 20th century, he was in Constantinople. He had gone there with some friends to the Hagia Sophia, uh, the great church of Justinian, which in the year 1453 became a mosque. It is presently a museum. But was filled then in Zwinger's time with a great company of people worshiping Allah. And it is said that Zwinger could only be restrained by those in his company who would not let him go to mounting the steps of the pulpit and preaching Christ right there in the citadel of Mohammed. The gospel has not been heard there in a very long time. But may it not be that even as we look at things now, in such hard times, and when religion is being examined for what it is, that there may yet be openness among these people to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray and let us believe that what began with these magi from that very part of the world may result at last with a great host coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in himself the only way to true peace. Let us pray.